0: You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. Good morning, everybody. I hope you had a wonderful Christmas. Um, yeah, by the way, my name is Ken. I'm the director of Global Life here at Grace Family Church. You might be wondering where Pastor Jeff is. Pastor Jeff and Violet took some time off to spend time with, with their family over Christmas and their grandkids. Um, making great memories. I know we made some great memories. We had our entire family here with spouses and grandkids, and even my dad came up for Christmas. And so we had four generations uh, celebrating Christmas this time. It was really, it was memorable. It's one we won't forget. And, um, you know, we were talking, we had a gathering a few weeks ago, and we were kind of talking about Christmas memories. And, um, you know, what are our fondest things? The things that we remember most about Christmas. And, and you could see most people, as, as we started to talk about this, they all started going back to when they were kids. You know, that's when Christmas was so impressionable upon us. Now, when I was a kid, we knew Christmas was coming on because remember when you'd watch the Saturday morning cartoons? Because they were only on Saturday morning. And you'd see all the commercials for all the toys. All that started ramping up, and you started, you know, you started to get excited. And then when you started to get into the throes of December, that's when all the Christmas specials would come on, all of them. And, you know, remember the the regular, um, you know, the regularly programmed, They even had an announcement, won't be seen tonight because of this Christmas special. And then you'd have a special. And, you know, we only got to see it one time because we didn't have DVR and we didn't have VCRs. And so we had to be around for that big event. But some of those Christmas specials um, that I remember, You know, like those claymation ones. Folks are still watching them. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. That classic, the year without a Santa Claus. You know, you've all seen those. And they're all part of of, of our culture's Christmas. And that's some of the most influential things that I remember um, from a kid. But one I remember, one of those claymations that they did, um, they actually tried to hit to the heart of Christmas, or what the Christmas story is, at least the real Christmas story. And that was this one. You might remember it. It's the Little Drummer Boy. Y'all remember that? I can tell by the, by the reactions. Y'all remember that? The Little Drummer Boy. And that—and I'm going to be honest, that, that stuck with me. That was one of the, the memories forged in my mind of what the real Christmas must have looked like. So much so, we had a nativity scene. All the characters were there. And I would wonder, why isn't the Little Drummer Boy there? We sing about the kings, we sing about shepherds, we sing about Bethlehem and stars, and, and we have this song here. I didn't know that was a song that just kind of came out in the 40s. And Anyway, um, but those are the impressions that were really that, that I had of what the real Christmas must have looked like, really forged from media and, and the way culture treats Christmas. Well, This morning we're going to go to the book of Matthew, and we're going to read a, an account of Christmas. It's in Matthew chapter 2, and one reason I wanted to go there is, is because this is one more Christmas memory for me. When I was born again, back in my um, mid-20s, and Christmas season came, and that was the first time I actually got into the Bible and read what the Bible had to say about Christmas, and my, um, for lack of a better word, my little drummer boy theology was just absolutely rocked when I saw what what the biblical narrative really is. And so this morning, we're gonna take a look at Matthew chapter two, uh, verses one through 12. And we're going to start out with the first six verses. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, uh, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for from you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so in these first six verses, we have all the major players um, in this particular uh, passage of Scripture. And perhaps one of the most... um, I don't know, one of the most depicted, but one of the most, uh, that has all this padding added to it, are the Magi. Who are the Magi? Who are these guys? And I want to just take a little time this morning to explain who they really are. And the term Magi was used um, for priests and wise men of the, like the Medo-Persian and Babylonian kingdoms. The Greek word there, Magoi, actually means uh, great and powerful ones. And so you could go back to verse 1 and say, great and powerful ones from the east would be one way to look at that tra- translation. But these guys were men of great influence. They were astronomers, they were advisors, advisors to kings, advisors to governments. And they were mathematicians. And in essence, they were wise men, although we never see that term in Matthew. We don't see them called wise men. And you know, we also don't see them being described as kings. And so you know that carol that we sing, We Three Kings? There's a lot of great content in that carol, but the We Three Kings part comes more from legend and more from myth um, that kind of grew in the church than from this original biblical narrative. But given their power and their influence, and then also the precious cargo that included, we didn't get there yet, but we know that they brought gold. Um, to Jesus. The Magi, like, they likely traveled in a really large like caravan or an entourage. Some historians say probably hundreds, you know, with armed guards. And many say within even thousands, it would have been this group of thousands moving across the desert from, uh, from Persia all the way to Jerusalem. And so that iconic, you know, Christmas card image that we typically see behind me, I mean, that. I'm not trying to knock that down. I, I, I probably got a card like that, and I probably sent one as well. You know, that is iconic of Christmas. That really isn't probably the picture of what this looked like when they were coming across the desert. They weren't kings. We don't know how many there were. They probably come up with three because they gave three gifts. But they were probably in a very, very, very large group that comes into Jerusalem. And so... One more part about this, because I did uh, go back and watch The Little Drummer Boy, just for some childhood memories, and I was surprised to see, but I remembered it once, I saw it again, in the, in the version of The Little Drummer Boy, there's the, there's the three kings, and they all have names, and you've probably heard them before, Melchior, Gaspar, and Balthazar, as this, this is something permanent in history, but we don't see any names here in the Bible, um, no, I'm not trying to knock down the claymation company. They didn't come up with those names either. They've been around for centuries and centuries and part of just um, really myth and legend. And you'll still hear them uh, referred to that even today. Now, I'm not trying to beat up on Christmas carols and I'm not trying to beat up on Christmas specials and I'm not trying to beat up on the Christmas card that you sent me, <laughs> um, but, but this is, I do want to mention this. You know, it, whether we know the exact number of magi, or not, um, you know, that's not going to make or break our salvation in Jesus Christ. Amen? Um, But it is a great example of how God's Word can be watered down, it can be twisted, it can be added to, or it might can be, maybe it can be ignored completely in our culture. It's been done for centuries, and it's probably only going to get worse. We're probably going to see more of it. But, you know, Satan's um, temptation to Adam and Eve was really the same thing, wasn't it? He took God's word and he twisted it around to say, but didn't God say? And we see what happened to them. And so I think this is just a great reminder for us to, um, you know, to remember that God's word is infallible. God's word is timeless. God's word is for all seasons, for all circumstances. It's for all of us and we need to know it. And we need to know it, we need to grow in it not just up here, but also in here from our heart. It's not just a matter of knowledge, which we're gonna see in a minute, it's also how we act upon it and how, it, um, how it's lived out from our heart. Now, while these guys weren't kings, um, they were known as king makers, and their combination of knowledge, wisdom, and secret mysticism made them the most powerful group um, of advisors in the Babylonian Persian empires. And so just consider their journey. Again, if they came from Babylon, we're looking at close to 1,000 miles. Some say they came from as far as Iran, so we're at 1,000 miles plus, And they traveled all the way from there to Jerusalem at basically the pace of a casual walk. I mean, how long must that have taken? And why were they driven to do such a thing? And so I'll ask you this question because I know you're, it's burning in your heart. Why would Persian kingmakers embark on a year-long journey to Jerusalem in search of a Jewish king? Remember, they said, we're we're looking for a king of the Jews. These guys were kingmakers in Persia. Why are they coming to Jerusalem? Well, we need to know a little bit more biblical history on that. Now, in Matthew chapter 2, this is not the first time that we see the Magi. We also find the Magi in the book of Daniel in chapter 2. And you guys all remember the book of Daniel, right? We were there for quite some time. Um, I, think it's, it's, I was kind of joking with Pastor Jeff. I said, I'm going back to Daniel again, <laughs> but only quickly. But anyway, in, in Daniel chapter 2, that's where King Nebuchadnezzar has the dream. And then he calls all his, um, the, his counsel, his advisors. It, it says his soothsayers, sorcerers, and priests, basically the wise men, who give him advice. And he asks them not only to tell him the interpretation of the dream, he says, tell me what the dream was. And these guys come back to him and say, no no king has ever asked that of anybody. No one could do this king. And so he says, fine, you can't do it. Um, I'm, I'm going to kill you all. So he orders to have all of these guys killed. Now, it just so happens there's also a young man by the name of Daniel who was a Jewish exile into Babylon, and he was being trained up in Babylonian culture and literature, history, and government so that he could be one of these devoted advisors to the king. So he gets together with his three buddies and they pray to the God, the the only one God. And God gives him the answer to the dream. Not just what the dream was, but also gives him the interpretation. And so if you look, um, we'll put it up on the screen. It says in Daniel 2, verse 48, Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. And he made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel, a Jewish exile, becomes leader in chief over all the wise men or the magi of Babylon. So you can be assured with him as the leader that these magi now are going to be exposed to the God of Daniel and to the writings of, 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 of Daniel's God. In fact, they would have, and if they're exposed to the writings, that would be the books of Moses, and that's where we find Numbers. And in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, it says this. It says, I see him, but not now. I look at him, but not near. A star shall appear from Jacob. A scepter, denoting a ruler, shall rise from Israel. It's very likely they were armed with that scripture And then the the Magi also would have known of Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. We we, we were there. We know what that is. We won't go in there. But they could do the math. 483 years from this point and know we've seen the star. We know this scripture. And now we know this is the season where this Messiah is supposed to come. And, And that is what fueled, I believe, what fueled their journey, that long, long journey to come all the way to Jerusalem. And I think that's amazing because we really see God's providence. We see God's sovereignty, his hand. And what an amazing setup. Because Daniel, along with hundreds and hundreds of other um, Jewish exiles, they stayed there. They stayed in Babylon. They stayed in Persia. They held on to their God. They held on to the law. They held on to the writings. And it probably got spread around a little bit. And so we see God working even in, through the exile out into the nations to ultimately draw the nations back unto him. So let's move on to Herod. I didn't hear one boo. Most people, yeah, most people are excited about Herod. He's likened to the Grinch or the Scrooge. He was way, way worse than that. We're going to find out. But a couple of good things about Herod. He was actually a master builder um, in ruins of several of his building projects in Israel. If you've ever been to Israel, you've probably seen a few of those. One of those building projects um, was the harbor at Caesarea. And so that harbor is on the Mediterranean. And when he did that, he opened up Israel to all the world trade that was moving through and around the Mediterranean. He also worked on um, the second building of the temple in Jerusalem. And it was was said of his time that, that Israel had not seen that kind of fame and that kind of attention, even that kind of glory, since the days of King Solomon while Herod was king. This is Herod the Great. And so Herod certainly endeavored to be the greatest of the king, kings of the Jews. But however, Herod's he's not Jewish. He's an Edomite from the nearby land of Jordan. And he was not the king of the Jews through birthright. And he was not the king of the Jews because the Jews chose him to be. Um, he was simply the king of the Jews because Rome assigned this position to him by Caesar Augustus. And so in verse 3, go back to our scripture, you, you see where he's troubled. It says he's troubled, and then it says that all of Jerusalem is troubled. Well, why is he troubled? He is the one king of the Jews, and these magi come to town. They don't even seem to recognize his kingship. They simply say, we've come to see the king of the Jews, and we've come to worship him. And so you can imagine why Herod's a little bit troubled. And Jerusalem troubled with him, and here's why I think Jerusalem is troubled. And really, a better translation for that word is terrified. This is a deep, deep, deeply disturbed and and terrified feeling that both are feeling. Because usually, if Herod was troubled, then uh, that meant trouble for all of Jerusalem. And I think Jerusalem knew that because they saw what was happening and, and, and Herod's throne possibly being challenged. Now, history records that Herod ruthlessly defended his position of power, ruthlessly defended the throne, so much so that he killed close family members who he was suspicious that were going to try to take him and dethrone him. His mother-in-law, his wife, and two of his sons, he he killed all of them to protect his throne. And so that would kind of make sense um, when you see that word troubled in verse three, but we get to verse four and we get this cameo appearance of the chief priests and scribes. So he calls them together, he asks them, you know, back then they didn't have Google, this was their, their version of Google, where was Messiah to be born? And they immediately, they immediately tell him the answer, in Bethlehem of Judea. And not only do they tell him, give him the answer, they say, and here's how we know. And they go straight to the scripture from Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, we'll read it again. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for from you will come forth a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Hold on to that term shepherd because we're going to get there at the end. One thing that is astounding to me is this, this guy's knowledge of the scriptures is obvious right here. We know there's no one really on the planet probably than these guys that know God's word better. They know all of the prophecies, not just this one. They know all of his word. And yet, you don't see any, at least in this passage of Scripture, there is no seemingly sense of concern or curiosity about what is happening right now, right beneath their noses, so to speak. And they don't go on with, with, the, um, with the Magi to, to go and search and find this, who would be this Messiah that they have been waiting for, that has been prophesied about, that um, all, all the, so many of their feasts point to, but it seems like no matter all the head knowledge that they have, they don't seem to be that interested um, in finding out anymore. Yet we have these foreigners, we have these Gentiles, with only portions possibly, just, just, just little pieces of scriptures, and they have traveled possibly up to a year for a thousand miles to come and find this king and come worship this king. You know, later on in the Gospels, we will see that these religious elite, um, and not these specific ones, but I'm talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're going to be the ones, not only are they um, disinterested, as they kind of seem here, later on, they're going to become defiant, um, very disrespectful, we'll see. And then ultimately, they're going to become murderous, murderous towards this Messiah, the Messiah that they had been waiting for. But Jeremiah twenty-nine thirteen says this. He says, You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And if you kind of look, if we kind of just put those two groups against each other, the the the, uh, the magi and these and these guys, the the uh, the Jews or the the ones who know the law, the Pharisees, one of them has a whole lot of head knowledge, but the others definitely prove that they have a whole lot of heart to take on a journey and, and to go what they went through to find this king. And so, you know, I think this is a wonderful um, but sobering reminder to all of us. Yes, it's wonderful to master the scriptures, and it's wonderful to have a sound knowledge and a growing knowledge of God's word, but that is not enough. That is not all that God is looking for from us, and so we must act on that word. We must apply that word in faith. We, might, we can't just store it up in here. We also have to store it and hear and act from it. And, you know, when you think about that, that really is what worship is in one way, is how we live out and work out God's word in us for him and for his glory. So now in verse 7, we're going to get into the second half of the scripture. It says, Herod secretly called for the Magi and determined from them the exact time that the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went on ahead of them, and until it came to a stop over the place where the child was to be found, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly and with great joy. And after they came into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and after being warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So we have to come back to Herod for one more moment here. Because after he discovers where uh, the baby was to be born, then he tells them, hey, it's Bethlehem. You guys go down there. But notice how it says he pulled them aside secretly. Something's up here. And I think most of you know what's up here. But something's definitely happening here where he pulls them aside. He also asks them, he wants to know, when did this star appear to you guys? He's going to do some math of his own. We're going to find out when when he discovers that from them. So he sends them off and says, report back to me because I want to worship him also. We know that that's a lie. He didn't want to worship him also. He wanted to wipe him out. And so, um, and we're going to see that. That's a spoiler alert. Sorry, we're not going to get to that part (laughs) as we get all the way down into this. We're going to end at verse 12, but... Um, his goal was not to worship this new king. His goal was to kill this new king, this one who is threatening his throne. And if you look at verse 16, um, this is what, what happens. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, because remember in verse 12 it says they went home by another way because they were warned in a dream. When he'd been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. Sent men "...and sent men and killed all the boys who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity who were two years old or under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi." So he did the math of his own. Um, I don't know if it was up to two years before they came. Maybe it was one year, and then he added on a year, just to be sure. But you can imagine how horrible that was And in Bethlehem and in the surrounding area, as you continue to read... Um, if you finish that passage of Scripture, it actually talks about the crying and the weeping that would come from there because of what Herod does. Herod was a madman. Herod was a murderous madman. And I'm going to be honest, I was a little tentative to title the sermon um, The Magi, The Madman, and The Messiah, but um, he was all that and then something. But I think in just kind of a little sweep of irony, I want to come back to one thing about Herod and his master building. He had built a palace. It was a palace slash fortress. And he built it about eight miles south of Jerusalem. It's called the Herodium or the Herodian. And that's a rough picture of what it was. But there was nothing like it in the ancient world. It was really, it was quite a marvel. And he built it on top of this large hill so that it could be seen as far away, eight miles, in Jerusalem. So all of Jerusalem would see it. But what's interesting about where he built it It was actually less than three miles from Bethlehem. And so this next picture, that's what it would look like from just outside Bethlehem, looking over Bethlehem to where that hill is. And you kind of see that level out part. That's what's left of of what he built in the ruins of the palace um, that he built there. And you can imagine the contrast. So think about it. Mary and Joseph on the way to Bethlehem, and as their, their their child was born, they saw that they went right by this look this huge palace and saw, um and saw this thing. And how ironic that the king of the Jews, at least the proclaimed one or the the uh, appointed one, was living in this luxury and this wealth and one of the most amazing places um, in all of earth. And here the king, the real king, the king of the universe, is being born in a dirty, smelly probably fly-ridden stable. I mean, how ironic is that? And then the Magi, I know they had to have seen it also as they're coming into Bethlehem, um, probably thinking about, are we going to go back and see this guy or not Um, as they go to follow the star to follow, um, to find Jesus. But what I thought was just so ironic is he's so intent, meaning Herod, to kill Jesus and how shocked he must have been to find out that Jesus had was not only born, but was living right underneath his nose, right uh, a short walk from this palace, and he didn't even know it. He didn't even know it. But in verse 9, so we we'll get to verse 9. It says, After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them and until it stopped over the place where the child was. So this star... There's all kinds of argument and debate. What was this star? Was it just a convergence of planets? Was it a meteor? Was it? There's all kinds of things. And I, I don't really necessarily want, want to go there for time. Um, but we do, at some point, I think it must have disappeared. Um, and I think they went into Jerusalem and had to ask because the star wasn't leading them anymore. But now it's reappeared again and they follow it. But about the star, you know, when you think about a star... And by the way, mariners have been doing this for centuries, for millennia. You can follow a star and you can get, um, you can go all the way around the world by reading the stars. But a star that's, that, that would take them to an exact place, an exact position to this house, this house where, where Jesus, Jesus is now living in Bethlehem. What kind of a star is that? And I don't want to dwell on it too long, but I just, one thing I did want to share is if you look again at the Greek, of what that word star is, it's aster, and this also means radiance. It also it means brilliance. And so here's what I think. I think that the brilliance, the same brilliance that guided the magi here in Matthew chapter two verse nine, I think it's also the same brilliance that's shown around all the shepherds when the angels' um, announcement of Jesus' birth in Luke chapter two verse nine. I think it's the same radiance that was known as the pillar of fire to the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert, in Exodus chapter 13. I think it's the same radiance and brilliance that was shown in Jesus during the transfiguration on the mount. And so what that means, the star, that radiance, his star, as the Magi called it, um, that this was none, nothing less but the glory of God, the glory of, of God shining and illuminating. And I think that's why in verse 10, it says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I love that. It's like exponential joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, once again, my uh, little drummer boy theology is crushed because we see them coming to a house and not to a manger, and we see them coming to a child and not to an infant. The, the, it's, it's quite clear the way that's written in Scripture. And, of course, they bring gifts. And we're going to kind of round the corner and bring it home here with these gifts. In verse 11, the three gifts of the magi. Now, much like the star, there's all kinds of debate. Were these gifts something that were of great significance or of, of prophetic value? Um, or were they just simply old, regular old gifts that you'd bring to any king um, in the ancient world? Um, I'm, I mean to decide that these gifts have significance, that they had great significance, actually. And there's a lot of things that lean me that way, but I want to just show you a, a portion of Scripture that kind of helped me to get there. And it's in Isaiah chapter 60. It's verses 1 through 6. And this is where Isaiah is proclaiming the future glory of Israel. Now, we're not going to read the whole thing because of time, but I did cherry-pick a few things out of that. And I want you to see some similarities from what's being, um, what's, what's written here and, and to the story that we're actually Um, reading in Matthew 2 verse 1 says arise shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you And look what it says in verse 3 nations will come to your light these guys are from the nations these guys are Gentiles these guys are not Jewish back to our passage of scripture the, the Magi and they were they were drawn by the light and they came to the light as we see in verse 10. Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will thrill and rejoice. Now, verse 10 makes a little more sense. Rejoiced, that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And then it says, because of the abundance of the sea will be turned to you, the wealth of the nations will come to you, and they will bring gold and frankincense and proclaim good news of the praises of the Lord. And that's one thing that convinces me that these gifts were more than just any old gifts that they would bring to a king. And so I would just want to walk through these three gifts as we move towards closing this morning. The first one was gold. And gold emphasizes Jesus' royalty. Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, gold is associated with royalty because of its scarcity and because of its immense value. We see in um, Kings chapter 10 when the uh, Queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon. She's bearing huge quantities of gold to bring to and to honor the king. And so I believe that by bringing this gift of gold, that, that the, um, the magi, they'd already called him king, that they were honoring him as king, honoring him as royalty. And, and honestly, Matthew, he emphasizes this. If you look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, that whole lineage is all about this guy, this one that is being born, this Jesus he is from the royal line of David. He has royal blood, and pointing to his royalty. And then, of course, here in chapter 2, showing these guys coming from the east to worship him as king, worship him, and to give him gifts as royalty. So it makes sense. The second gift is frankincense. And this emphasizes Jesus' deity. And so frankincense is something that's still widely used in the Middle East. But in the ancient Near East, frankincense, I mean, some of the gold was very scarce and um, very, very costly. And so in Jerusalem, it's likely it was exclusively used in temple worship. And what is temple worship for? It is for worshiping the Lord or worshiping God. And so I believe in this way, their inclusion of frankincense and bringing frankincense, I believe they, they knew that, the, that Jesus was not just a king because of royal lineage, that there was also um, deity attached to this claim as Messiah. So frankincense uh, emphasizes Jesus' deity. Now the last gift that they bring is the gift of myrrh. I've never known what myrrh is. (laughs) I've never really, until I really dove in and studied this, But you know, the whole Christmas story introduced Jesus' mission, and so I'm going to say Myrrh emphasizes Jesus' mission, and, and you'll see where we're going here. And his mission is to save his people from their sins. You could say that Jesus was born to save. All the hoopla about Christmas is not just about a birth, it's about what this one was going to do, and that is to save the world. And, and it says that in Matthew chapter 1, when the, when the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream, he says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now what's really interesting about that, Joseph didn't name Jesus and Mary didn't name Jesus. God named Jesus through this dream. And his real name in Hebrew, or his Hebrew name, is Yeshua. And Yeshua, directly translated, means God saves. All over the place in the Christmas story is pointing to Jesus as Savior, one who comes to save. Again, in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, when the angel is speaking to the shepherds, announcing the arrival of Jesus. They say, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And even Jesus, when speaking to Nicodemus in John, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 17, he says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to? Yeah, but to save the world, to save the world through him. And so, just to paraphrase a little bit, he's telling Nicodemus, I was born to save But saving us from our sins also meant that he would have to lay down his life for us. And that brings us back to this very strange gift of myrrh that was given to the child Jesus by the Magi. Myrrh had two primary uses in ancient Israel. The first use was they would use it along with vinegar to dull severe pain. And the only reason I know this um, is because we can see it in Scripture, in Mark chapter 15, verse 23. Jesus at his crucifixion. In verse 23 it says, and they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it, and they crucified him. Now the second most common use for myrrh in the ancient world was for embalming. Embalming and anointing a, a dead body. And again, we see myrrh used in relation to Jesus when his body is being prepared For burial, it says in John chapter 19, verse 38 through 40. Now after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, requested of Pilate that he might take away his body, the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, we already saw him in chapter 3, who had first come to him by night also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred liters weight, so they took the body of Jesus, and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And so now knowing the mission of Jesus and what would be required of him, the gift of myrrh makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? It was really a foreshadowing of what it meant for him not only to be king, but to be savior and savior of the world. You know, we started off this morning reading in in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. When the Magi came, they said, they came for the king of the Jews and they came to worship him. That's the first time we see that term king of the Jews used in the Gospel of Matthew. But it's used one more time and it's the last time it's used in the Gospel of Matthew. It's Matthew 27, verse 37. Again, when Jesus is being crucified and it says, and over his head, they put the charge against him, which said, or which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, one more memory, if you will, or thinking way back before I was born again, I didn't think a whole lot about Jesus dying on the cross. I knew it happened because of my upbringing, but be, to be quite honest, I, I thought it was just kind of like nothing more than like a tragedy. It was a tragedy. It was tragic. It, no more than, say, the death of Abraham Lincoln. It was murder. It was unjust. It was unfair, but it was just happening. But that's not the case at all. We know that Jesus' death was premeditated, and when I say that, I don't mean premeditated by the the, the Jewish elite got together and said, we're going to kill this guy, which they did. And so it was premeditated in that sense, but I'm talking way before that, this death was premeditated. I mean, Jesus was born for this very purpose. God became flesh to save his people from their sins. He was predestined from the very beginning of time. And Jesus would be the only sacrifice, the only acceptable sacrifice that could wash away our sins, wash away the sins of all the world. But again, to save us, he would have to lay down his life. He would have to surrender his life at the appropriate time. Now, here's an interesting thing. Man cannot kill God. Man cannot kill God. And this is one more proof that Jesus was God incarnate. 100% God and 100% man. Because Herod tried to kill him. Perhaps the most powerful man in all of that region with with armies and uh, everyone subject to him, and he couldn't kill him. How come? Because God intervened. And of course we know that the family escaped to Egypt and ultimately didn't come back until Herod had passed away. you know there's eight other times in the gospels where his life was either threatened or they just flat out tried to take his life they tried to stone him, they tried to throw him off a cliff but man cannot kill God now remember back to that prophecy in Micah chapter 5 verse 2 where it said that a ruler would come from Bethlehem and said one who would shepherd my people Israel Jesus sums it all up this way he says in, in John chapter 10 verse 18, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, no one takes it from me. And then goes on to say it's not on the screen, but he said I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it back up again speaking of his death and of his resurrection. They didn't take his life. He laid down his life for us. When the time when that time had come, He laid out His life for us. And so it's interesting because when you think about it, now this means His blood was not spilled, but His blood was poured out. His blood was poured out for us. His death was not an accident like I used to think. It was a divine appointment. And the circumstances all around and the chaos and all that happened um, through His scourging and His crucifixion, he had that completely under control he knew and so his death and was predestined before time began so that we well really so that he could accomplish that mission that mission he was born for and that was to save us and save the world from their sin so this morning i just would like to invite you to stand with me we're going to celebrate communion this morning Um. we're going to celebrate the Lord's table in in remembrance, in remembrance of Him in remembrance of His miraculous birth in remembrance of His miraculous life and and really as we've just seen in remembrance of of His supernatural death and of course His resurrection we do this in remembrance of Jesus Jesus the God-man who willingly laid down His life to save us from our sins Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed he took bread he broke it he gave thanks and he broke it and he said this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way he took the cup and after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant. A new covenant, in my blood, which has been poured out. Which has been poured out for you. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. He will come again. That's what we celebrate, that's what we remember. That's why we should have great and exceeding joy. Rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Now, as we launch into this new year, let's remember that. What an incredible... I, I, I got some pretty good gifts this Christmas, but nothing like this. This is what Christmas is all about. This is why we're here. This is why we celebrate. This is why we have joy. This is why we go the next day and the next day, whether it's a victory or whether it's a trial, Because we know he's beside us. We know that he saved us. We know he has a purpose for us here. And we know our lives are to be lived in a way that glorifies him. Amen. So let that be our prayer. In fact, let's pray. Let's close this morning in prayer. Heavenly Father, that's what we pray. We remember you. We remember all you've done. We look ahead to all that you're going to do. And Lord, and we praise you with great joy, with exceedingly great joy, Lord God. We say thank you. Thank you for saving our lives. Thank you for saving us from eternal death. Thank you for bringing us into your kingdom that we might be with you eternally, that you would call us sons and daughters of the Most High God. We thank you for that, dear Lord. And so, Lord, we pray, but let us not forget this that we would not just remember you in a moment but that would be that that would be who we are for this upcoming year that we would remember you in all that we do in work in play when we're here when we're out in the world and lord we pray that you would use us just as you use the Magi to draw all of the world's attention to your son Jesus lord god we pray that you would use us wherever we are and whatever we do and However, whatever that might be, Lord God, we pray, use us. Use us to bring great glory and even great fame to your name. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.